Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Pasimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Council, Emotional Sobriety, Why Abstinence is Not Enough. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources for providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Pasimio. And I'm Joshua Moore. And we have our special guest this evening, Tara Lynn Rayburn. Hi, guys. Glad to be here. We're glad you're here, too. Thanks for coming out in the cold and the dark. Yeah, no kidding. It's a trek. Yeah. It's quite a trek. I walked across campus and I saw three people who were locked out of a room. And it was so oh, I was, that's I was devastating. Like, yeah, go wait inside. Go wait inside. It was terrible. I felt bad for them. Yes, keys are quite a privilege on a night like this. <laughs> so. They're waiting for security, but I, I don't think they should be waiting outside. I was like, yeah. Just go wait nearby. Probably a health hazard. Yeah. yeah quite no, part, part of the irony for me. So, um, uh, so the night that we're recording this, a few weeks ago, we released an episode in, in the February, which apparently we'd recorded back in August. Uh, and it was it the one that got like, like stuck in the couch cushions? It was like one of those, <laughs> yes. Um, but, in the, but in that one, we're griping about how hot it is. And we're like, we turned off the AC for our listener because it was too loud. And now it's exactly the opposite. We're yeah, like, we're yeah. keeping the heater on and we don't care about the listener. So. We, we are like five for our listeners. We're like five episodes ahead at any given time. And yeah. so we can take, take vacations and things like that without feeling terrible. So. <laughs> right. Vacations. We've been talking about a vacation in Hawaii um, and maybe doing drug addiction counseling in Hawaii. Well, because I think I think all three of us have. Do you have something planned for Hawaii? I'm going to Hawaii on Saturday morning. I leave. Wow! And I think yeah. I have a trip planned for July, which means all of us are engaging in self care soon. I think so. Yes, yes. mine is mine is good. still about a year out, but mm. it's it's good. Are It'll be a good be good okay? marathon. Well, I think <laughs> any time that you have something to look forward to, even if it's far away, it's yeah. like thank goodness, you know. Mm-hmm. So on a bad yeah. day, you can just let your mind wander. Yeah, for sure. totally. Speaking of self care. Here's our here's our ritual routine. Uh, what is everybody reading or watching or doing to engage the the mind? I've been mostly diving into some of the neurofeedback research. I'm trying to compile some some research, <laughs> some for my own personal reasons. <laughs> I'd like to have some available. You reading neurofeedback? I'm shocked. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sorry. For, for most people, like, aren't you always doing that? He's like, always yes, doing but, that. But this yeah. is more specific. I'm trying to get it honed down to a few specific topics. But yeah. Very cool. I want to do some lectures on it. That's what I want to do. So That sounds joyous. Yeah. How about you? I am looking forward to the days when I do reading for something that isn't graduate school, you know? So um, (laughs) right now I'm watching The Sopranos, which is like the opposite of trauma informed, Um, (laughs) but it's still entertaining, really good character. So Mm -hmm. that like you get sucked into it, you know, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, this week in my last class, we were um, reading about vicarious trauma, which Mm -hmm. is. Of course, always a really good topic, especially related to self-care, you know, and, and all of the information that we take in and then what we do with that to hold on to ourselves, you know. So, yeah, definitely related, even though not intentional. Mm-hmm. That's pretty deep. Yeah. I am reading a couple books about sex. Um, well, oh, well, 
as opposed to what? Right, well, it's true. It's true. <laughs> you yeah. called me out. I'm calling you out. <laughs> I know. I read about this stuff a lot. Uh, so I'm reading one book. Um, it's it's an older one. It's mm-hmm. called Don't Call It Love by Patrick Hines. And it's mm-hmm. going into the details of what is sex addiction, what is addiction in general, and um, you know, why it's... Why it's um, and he's going into what is the difference between uh, an addictive relationship with sex versus just having a lot of sex. And because there's a difference. Right. Uh, so, so there's that. And it's, it, again, it's a little bit older. So some of the language is a little bit dated, but some of the concepts still hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also reading through uh, a workbook called Recovery Zone, which is fun too. It's, it's a good, um, I'm using it for a group. It's designed for people who have established some sobriety and are now starting to work on maintenance stuff. And in the absence of explosive acting out behaviors, now they have time to look inward and look at the deeper underlying things. So there's that. Nice. We're also rewatching Lost, and, <laughs> uh, which is just good fun in so many ways. Uh, this time, I, I'd once heard the theory that uh, every season of Lost mirrors one of Erickson's developmental stages. What? And so I'm kind of like looking to see if that has any bearing. It's holding up so far. We're in season three. I don't know what's going to happen by season six wow. because season six just went off the rails. But so, did, didn't you originally, <laughs> when it was first airing, watch Lost with me? We did sometimes. Yeah. Like in the dorms and yeah. in the how, Aslan's how. Oh, so good. Uh, Those yeah. are the days. Those are the days. <laughs> anyway, thank you for indulging. We're all nostalgic now. Totally. Right. <laughs> it's cold. We're just going to talk about movies. Um, <laughs> but um, so getting into um, more, more serious stuff. Um, so Tara Lynn. Love to hear a little bit more about what you're up to and what's your corner of the counseling world. Um, and I know you're you're in graduate school, which I'd love to hear about that. Um, but you've also practiced and been practi- been a practicing practitioner for a while also. Um, maybe drop a little bit of that story. Yeah, totally. So it's definitely an interesting experience to be uh, both a student and also someone who's practicing. And I had a mentor who had always, you know, used the phrase, uh, one day teacher, next day student. And so I tried to live by that principle and, um, you know, really practice humility. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really thankful to have a lot of awesome mentors, but one who pointed out to me, you know, you really owe it to your former clients to be present in this process you know, to continue your learning and to prioritize your life as though your number one goal is your student. Everything else is is kind of secondary to that. Um, so with that, <laughs> though that is my number one um, kind of corner of the world, my number two and very close in comparison would be Voyage and Serenity. Um, so I am a partial owner of a coaching and consulting business. Um, we work with clients who are eating disorder, substance abuse, and um, some mental health issues that are co-occurring. It just kind of depends on the acuity. Um, and then we do a lot of family work. So we do interventions, a lot of case management with the family and working with them um, in before a loved one's getting into treatment, during, after, um, a lot of people who know me know that I'm a very big uh, proponent of Bowen's family systems theory. And I really believe that we have these kind of environments mm-hmm. um, created with our family system. And as we get in recovery, those evolve and change. Mm-hmm. But the more support we can provide in that, the better. So that's kind of my main squeeze. 
that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, so like, well, a, we, I mean, we love family systems also and oh, yeah. just addressing the whole system. It's super vital. Um, but Voyage and Serenity, I mean, uh, it's, it's a newer thing on my radar, but it sounds like these really great wraparound services and early intervention, late intervention. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, sober companion work um, has been really popular, especially down in bigger cities um, such as Los Angeles, New York. Uh, actually, if anyone watches the TV show Shameless, they recently did like an episode where they kind of made fun of sober companioning. Um, and and so, yeah, it's become much more mainstream. Um, and I think that really, you know, my partner, she is my business partner. She's wonderful. And she has been doing the specific companion work for many years. And she kind of had this experience where she saw people being sucked in and not being able to set boundaries with patients and mm. companions not having the clinical oversight that they needed. So we really have what we call a case management system um, so that we try to really make sure that there's intensive supervision um, so that people can have self-care as well as a primary person working with the family. So so this idea of a, of a sober companion, so it's a little bit of a newer term for, for me. I mean, you can yeah. guess kind of what, what that looks like, but um, what is a sober companion compared to a counselor, compared to a recovery peer, et cetera? Yeah. So I think, you know, we make a really clear distinction that we're not therapists in that role. You know, all of our people have some sort of clinical background, whether they're a KDAC or CRM or quite a few of us who are in graduate school mm -hmm. or have completed it. So um, sober coaching and, and sober companion work is a newer term. And, and I like to think of it really as mentoring, you mm -hmm. know, especially working with I think that it, it came to light recently that working with recovery population, especially, but really mental health in general, that there's this need for additional support, like what happens outside the outside of the counseling office, the other 23 hours a day. Right? right. Like, what are you doing with that time? How are you gaining support? And obviously with insurance cuts and and all of these things that have happened, legislation changes, being able to provide people with that care has been difficult. So I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. So so how can we like provide that support to people? And uh, so, you know, we really make that distinction. We're not the therapist, but we're right. going to work hand in hand with the therapist. You well, know? As you were talking, I was thinking like, hmm, how does that work billing wise? You know, um, you know, in an ideal world, we could build complicated systems that could be individually evaluated and, and, you know, assessed, but that, that isn't actually what happens in the real world, right, you know? Totally. So, so how does a, a system like that, um, actually function and, and exist financially? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we operate as a cash pay basis, mm -hmm. um, and we have a really quite good rate at that and mm -hmm. ability to work with people to meet their needs. Um, but there has been, I know at some level, um, at least in the state of Oregon, that certain agencies are now able to bill for peer mentor services. Mm, wow. I don't know how or what that looks like, but I know that's something that's kind of in the works. I'll have to keep an eye out because that sounds yeah. interesting. That yeah. does sound interesting. You, you think that if you can create a model that would actually be productive, it would only be a matter of time, you know, for, for the system to adapt, mm. you know, to that success. Um, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people on the podcast, you know, uh, discuss those variables, including 
including my practice is a cash pay practice because insurance won't pay for it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, you know, professionally, a lot of times we have to make those calls where it's like, um, you know, how can I provide the quality care that I know that someone needs? And, and that's, you know, what I had to do aligning with myself and, and checking in with what I knew people needed, you know, um, there's a need for it. So, so yeah. And, and mm-hmm. we're able to really collaborate with people and, and create that team around them, which I think, you know. We definitely need that support. Um, I'm thinking about this coming from the vantage point of the therapist. And there's, there have been a lot of times when I feel like, I just wish there was something a little bit more, a little bit more than me, maybe even a little bit more than their organic family. Um, and sometimes, you know, uh, sending them to a support group can be good or sometimes, you know, referring them out to, you know, if, if they're connected to another community is good. But having that other person who can be in their lives on a more ongoing basis, um, but who also knows some of the technical speak. Um, I, I often find myself wishing for that. So mm-hmm. sounds like yeah, a recovery totally. companion, you know, like right now, for example, there's a case um, speaking in very general terms where the individual suffers um, with major depressive disorder and the therapist can only offer so much. So we are able to work with that therapist. Um, If the client is struggling, they can reach out or the therapist can reach out. We have an agreement and we're able to step in in between days when there's not therapy and go to that person's house, Mm -hmm. meet with, meet them where they're at as far as like, what's a realistic goal for today? How can we like implement some basic coping, you know, um, and, and really like walk through that stuff with people. So yeah, we get to be creative with our therapeutic approach and, and that is something as we all know, we totally need. We do need some creativity. I don't know what the, you know, barriers are when you're using insurance, but you know, in a private practice, you kind of do whatever you have to do. Um, you know, I practice EMDR and I've at times practiced, you know, um, psychodynamic. And so sometimes we do go to their house, you know, um, but I I don't, I don't know what the bureaucracy (laughs) that would be like, you know, outside of psychodynamic, it can be dicey or outside of say cash pay. I'm sure it can be dicey too. Um, but I think it's a little bit different. Um, yeah, it's like, Having a client clean their room, for example, mm-hmm. you know, totally. I have often wished I could have a designated person to go help people clean their rooms. Right. <laughs> so I've, I've done it, by the way, like as a client, <laughs> gone to my client's house and helped them clean the room. Well, one last question before we get into more abstract concepts, things. Mm-hmm. Um, how would an individual access uh, access Voyage and Serenity and a recovery companion? Yeah, totally. Um, so you can we have a website. It's voyageandserenity.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got us a Facebook. I'm yes. terrible at that. So you can also look us up on there. And we have an Instagram account. So um, at Voyage and Serenity. So mm-hmm. all three of those options can connect you with myself and our phone number and get you squared away, you know? So yeah. Very cool. That is awesome. Totally. Okay. They're on the web, on on the Facebook and the Instagram, so they must be credible. (laughs) (laughs) It's on the internet, Reese. We're fine. I know. I know. (laughs) It must be legit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm kind of fascinated by the whole dynamic. I I really, uh, you know, kind of wonder how you've seen that help clients specifically. If you can be, you have to speak broadly, obviously. Um, But how, what, you know, what kind of demographic? And what kind of bridges are, are, 
you know, uh, <laughs> my brain doesn't work tonight either. <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of uh, gaps does that intervention fill? Um, and how do you see that play out? Yeah. So I know that for me, you know, before I was doing this, when I, I worked in uh, outpatient chemical dependency, partial hospitalization, um, I ran some sober living houses. I did various roles in that capacity, mm-hmm. right? And and where we always would see the biggest kind of relapse factors were like between those levels of care, right? Mm -hmm. Like residential to partial hospitalization. You're out in the real world. What do you do? Mm -hmm. Partial hospitalization to IOP, IOP to just going to your primary therapist, you know, Mm -hmm. this loss in structure. And um, so, you know, I think that between those gaps, like having a point person where even if you're not meeting with them very often, like this person has been there with you and can level with you in a different way than yeah. your therapist um, and and align with you through that transition. And that's really incredible. And I think the other thing, too, is the ability to connect with someone um, before they go to treatment. A lot of times mm. we'll be, get calls to do uh, what's called sober transport. So taking someone to treatment, um, making sure that they're safe on that journey. You know, a lot of times, despite a family's love and their best intentions, like they're not the most qualified person to take right to be doing this transport, um, you know, for, for the person's health, for knowing the, the well, they might be coming in the wrong state of mind too. Yeah. You know, of, arguing with their mother on the right, way there. Totally. I can see that. Yeah. So being able to connect with that person beforehand, um, and kind of give them the, the ability to yeah. see like there is hope, you know? Yeah. It's starting to make me remember and think about, uh, I spent, you know, a couple of years working as a residential skills coach. Uh, at Rosemont Treatment Centers, which I, I don't think it exists anymore. I think Sage is there currently. Um, but it was a level five security residential facility with 54 beds. Um, and this isn't inpatient at all. It's outpatient. Um, but it makes me think of the kind of skills coaching work where you're not a therapist. There's to some degree some billability. You're there supporting, coaching, helping regulate, teaching interpersonal effectiveness, teaching mindfulness teaching emotional regulation and distress tolerance. Um, so I mean, that's kind of what my imagination is coming up with. Is that accurate? Yeah, totally. And I think that, you know, for me, um, one of the biggest barriers I saw at a lot of programs was their inability to, um, involve family, oh, yeah. um, or to help that c- client create whatever that healthy family piece looks like mm-hmm. if their family's unhealthy or there's some sort of detachment. So for me, you know, I do a lot of case management for us. I supervise our companions a lot um, and I work with families a lot. Mm-hmm. So a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time helping them implement coping and utilize their resources. And, you know, a lot of times that's just as effective. You mm-hmm. know, we can... Because the system, you know, I go back to this over and over again, but the system needs to change a little bit, Sure, you know? Um, yeah, I have a yeah. friend and, and probably a lot of you have heard the mobile um, metaphor, right? Where like when the addict or alcoholic is using and drinking, you know, there's a mobile, like for example, over a baby's crib and, and it will learn to balance. Um, the system will balance because 
it adapts and it changes to the need of the person who's sick Mm -hmm. with whatever the disorder is. Um, And then once that person gets well, it gets all out of balance. It gets wonky because how do I adapt to this? And it takes a period of time to adjust to that. And, And not adjusting properly can really hinder someone's ability to maintain whatever recovery they they have been doing. I feel like that might be a good segue into the the, the topic that uh, you pitched to us tonight uh, with uh, emotional sobriety and mm, that's right. In terms of talking about recovery, extended recovery, and all of the dynamics there, so I would love to riff and riff and riff. That's right. That, that is our topic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so so emotional sobriety, uh, Taralyn, you had pitched this topic to us, and I would love to hear what um, what draws you to this topic, and actually it was funny um as as josh and i were talking about it before uh you had asked me <laughs> what is it what, what is, is this yeah right um so i had an idea in my head that was not accurate <laughs> oh, okay yeah so do, do tell um what, what what is emotional sobriety and why does it matter yeah i i feel like we could do a whole series on this um so you know my mentor and everything I say is really regurgitation of someone else's brilliance ideas. But one of my mentors who really has like taken this um, concept and and really made it into something that I think is workable and in our context. And, and I think it's important to state, you know, it's really for me and what I've seen with my clients, it's not at all just with addictions. It's with a variety of other mental health disorders um, in, in kind of the curriculum that exists around this. One of my colleagues has actually rewritten it so that it doesn't say sobriety and the terms are really applicable straight to the um, clients he's working with that are primary mental health disorders. So at any rate, um, I will just say that uh, Dr. Berger has uh, defined emotional sobriety as essentially letting the best of you do the thinking and acting for all of you. So letting the best of you act for the rest of you. Um, So I think about... Yeah, that's very catchy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like being um, gestalt therapy roughly translates to whole. Okay. In whatever dialect that is i don't know i don't know about that stuff but that's that's the basis of that therapy and and so with emotional sobriety um and dr allen berger's background really being um as a gestalt therapist it's about becoming whole and emotionally centered and i think that um for substance abuse, um, in early recovery, it's it's like, all right, don't don't use, don't drink today. That's that's our goal. Just like that's a very you know, just like, yeah, yeah. just just don't ingest any substances for this twenty four hours, and it's a success. And and you know that works for a while. Um, the same way that it might work with eating disorders, with with whatever, right? right? But then what, right? You know, we need to kind of do something else, and and um think it's Gorski calls it like stage two recovery, you know, and, and I start to think like the problems of life start to get real. <laughs> um, and, and so all of that emotional turmoil comes up, you know, and, and the stuff that we haven't necessarily dealt with, um, starts to come out in our behaviors towards others. And, and we get faced with all these issues and, and there's really a lot of stuff that we need to unpack. So that's kind of the really mushy general 
piece of it. Yeah. The early behavioral focus is in on changing the behaviors and not ingesting the thing, not engaging in the behavior. It's very, very much objective on the surface level. And then assuming optimistically that there's success there, essentially you've taken away all of your coping filters and now there's nothing blocking. You have no way to escape life or filter life or, you know, manipulate your life experience. You have to actually face reality as it is, which you, I know you're, you're nervous. You are you are there, present with your nervous system for sure, and you which, do not have an escape. <laughs> right, which is another you know truism in in recovery speak. As we'll say, mm-hmm. recovery is you know embracing your reality at all costs, as yeah. it is. So, I'm I'm still kind of struggling um, of what it looks like to yeah. be emotionally sober. Yeah, totally. So, um, a, a preface kind of of all of this. Um, Bill Wilson, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, kind of many years into his sobriety, um, but still early for the life of AA, he, he wrote what's now called, um, this letter to emotional sobriety and you can Google it. You can look it up. Um, it's kind of old school and, and difficult to digest in ways, but essentially he says that, um, yeah, I'm sober from drugs and alcohol and, and that's wonderful, you know, however, like in many ways, emotionally, I'm still infantile. I'm still acting out towards these people, places and things that disturb me. Um, and, and I'm a grown man, but in many ways I'm acting very similar to the way that I would have as a teenager. And I'm feeling that anxiety and that pull towards what's outside of me. Um, and so with that, I think it's important to say that like emotional sobriety is like a goal. It's okay. not like you're not right. going to be like, I am, emo-, at least I haven't like, met I'm starting anyone. my sobriety today. Yeah. Like, yeah. I am emotionally <laughs> sober. I have made it, you yeah. know, um, it's about that process of checking in with yourself and, and having those dialogues. And, um, so is the, the, like when you have reached emotional sobriety, um, is that when you have fully adapted emotionally too, um, being say present and not escaping from your sensation or experience. I think that you could say that. Yes. I think that, um, you know, I like to think recovery is a process, not an event. So it's always ongoing for me at least. And, um, and so I, there's a, in Dr. Allen Berger's or one of his books, it's 12 smart things for your recovery. Um, one of the things that is talked about there is, you know, if you think about your whole day, um, and he does an emotional sobriety inventory. And for me, this is where it becomes applicable. So you think about your whole day and you write down a list of all of your upsetting events, great and small. Um, and there's, we can think of many of them. So I can think, well, I'm thinking about like, I, I'm sober from drugs, but I need to be sober from my codependency. Yeah. Or I'm sober from drugs, but I also yeah. need to be, you know, sober from my manipulation or yeah. um, my hostility or my criticism or whatever it is. Totally. Is, is that what you're, is that a good yeah, example? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, my emotional dependencies. Mm. And I think mm-hmm. like that can be people, that can be yeah. relationships, which is codependency. That okay. can be um expectations could be a lot of things you know i'm starting to get it yeah yeah Yeah, totally some other language to use um so coming from some of the 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 literature by by patrick kearns and you know the 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 itap people the end in my yeah so so me in the uh in the sex addiction counseling community i mean we'll talk a lot about all of this too and we'll we'll use language um acting out versus acting in 
um, as both parts of the same cycle. And so we'll say acting out is the more explosive, volatile, you're drinking, you're smoking, you're having your anonymous hookups, you're gambling, uh, you're, you're abusing food, that sort of thing. And we'll say, yeah, we should you know, get sober from that. We do that. That's the behavioral. And you stop your acting out. But then a lot of the times people will shift into this acting in cycle where they shift into the, what we might call the covert addictions or the socially acceptable addictions. Here's your person who's working really hard at their job or working out at the gym every Ah, day. I like it. Or they're like exercising too much, exercising too much, um, you know, you know, on social media, a whole bunch of times, that sort of thing. Or, and even in some cases we might say, um, as much as people find a lot of solace and strength in practicing a faith tradition and doing spiritual practices, there is a way that they can do like empty religious ritual where it's not really them pursuing holiness or a relationship with a higher power. It's just like, I'm, I'm at church, the music is fun and I'm getting this emotional high and I'm ignoring my problems still. Yeah. It's like distracted distraction from self, you yes. know, like that to break it down into Gorski relapse language. Yeah. yeah. It's like the avoidance avoidance by distraction, you right. know, like how can I avoid sitting right with me? Right. You know? And it's maybe a air quotes healthy way or socially acceptable, but really it's just another, another object of obsession. They're obsessing over something healthy. It's and, being used to avoid something else. Yes. Yeah. And a good, a good comparison actually would be going back and forth between I have no control, no self-control over what I eat. I just eat whatever, whenever. Then I go in this really strict, really stringent diet. Like I've been hearing a lot about keto lately, you know, and I maybe, you know, murder myself for three months, lose a whole bunch of weight. I like, great. I feel good, but it's unsustainable and it's bad for the body. And eventually you get tired of it. And because you never learned moderation or how to actually just be present with hunger, with your body as it is, you end up going back to eating whatever you wanted. And it's just more of the unhealthy cycle. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you could also use the term instead of emotional sobriety, like emotional balance or what do we say in DBT? We say I I, I worked in DBT, but I'm not with you yet. <laughs> uh, you say something about emotional wellness. Uh, oh, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> There's a term. There's a term. I don't know. I am thinking about emotional resilience, though, of when you're able to be fully present, or maybe it's the radical acceptance, the radical acceptance or the emotional resilience where um, the the emotionally sober person can fully experience all of their emotions, kind of no matter what it is, no matter what their mental state, and not be wrecked by it. I mean, they don't have to like it. I mean, that would be weird, but <laughs> but you can still have all of your emotions and uh, not be, yeah, not be wrecked by it and hmm. be able to continue functioning. How do I sort through this? Right. Like be aware and be present, you know, like yeah. if, if my supervisor says like, Oh my God, you did a crummy job. You know, if for me, if I'm not in a place of doing this, like emotional upkeep, then I'm going to take that personally. And I'm going to be like, Oh, what does that mean about me? Right. And if I'm in a place where I'm checking in with myself, I'm going to be like, all right, you know, maybe I did do a crappy job. Emotional (laughs) sobriety could be um, self-loathing. Emotional sobriety or becoming emotionally sober could be, could be stopping being self-loathing. I mean, I find, I find that a lot of people have a very, very critical inner voice in their head. And um, part of my journey is I used to have that, throughout my whole childhood. And as an adult, I don't have that at all. I've actually treat myself like a kind uh, friend would treat oneself. So like if a kind friend screws up, you're not going to lie to them, you know, (laughs) 
but you're going to speak kindly to them. And so, I mean, in some ways, maybe that was like, I can see a point in my life where like, oh, I became maybe emotionally sober in a dimension, you know? So that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I like that. Yeah. And that goes right along with a huge thing that Alan talks about is um, our relationship with ourself, right? You know, and a lot of times we see what these dependencies are in our relationships. So that can be relationship with spouse, relationship with authority, relationship with whatever, but that can also be our relationship with ourself. You know, yeah, like yeah. how am I treating myself? What does that dialogue look like? Yeah. Just like you mentioned, That's awesome. you know, and so it seems like emotional sobriety has a lot to do with connection, connection and attachment to your own self, to your significant other, to the people around you, to right. the world around you, your high power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really love the term. Um, and I use it a lot. Um, edit your reality. So like, does this thing edit your reality? You know, if I get a B on my paper, how much does that edit my reality? I'm a perfectionist, so it would edit it quite a bit. But the, you know, what are those things? And what does that tell us about ourselves? You know, a lot of times those, those things are not a sign there's something wrong per se, but they're an indicator that we get to look internally at something. You know, what is this telling me? You know, this bit of anger um, over this grade or over this reaction from this person. I love that as an example of the, I got a grade I didn't like, because it, it gives an opportunity. It gives the opportunity for some reflection and you can say, well, is my, so this is an external event. Uh, and does this external event have a forbearing on who I am as a person? You know, does who I am as a person remain constant regardless of grade? And if we can say yes, we could say, yeah, you're probably leaning the direction of emotional sobriety. And if not, we could say, maybe you're obsessing, fixating on something. Um, and likewise too, look at, um, you know, how's my overall reaction to this? You know, am I, am I needing to call in all of the extraneous explosive things to, to cope with the feelings or can I just kind of weather the feelings and, you know, I mean, not necessarily like them, but, but, but carry on, learn from them, you know, come at it from an approach of, well, let me be teachable and humble. Is there legitimately something I need to do better? If so, great. I'll do that. If not, eh, oh, well. Right. Totally. Yeah. Checking in with ourselves, being willing to receive feedback and um, acknowledge those things. You know, I was um, feeling nervous before doing this. And so I was listening to this old lecture from a training that I did um, with Alan Berger and then Tom Rutledge, who um, is one of the co-authors of uh, Life Without Ed, um, which is a wonderful memoir about eating disorders that he co-wrote with a client. Um, and I was listening to this lecture and in it, Alan talks about, um, you know, there's our an upsetting event that happens, right? And then we have this reaction time between the stimulus and our reaction, right? We have like this short interval of time, you know, stimulus, and then our action. And what do we do with like those moments in between that reaction? You know, do we say, oh my God, you're a terrible person. I can't do this. And then react to you and share that outwardly. Um, or do we say, okay, like I feel upset about this right now. It's not a good time to vocalize this in an aggressive way. You know, I'm going to save that and put that there for later when I can check in with my therapist or my sponsor or whoever my support person is. Um, and then respond in a diplomatic way, you know, and it's 
emotional maturity, I think, is also a big, a big way to put it. You know, am I, you know, I, if I am real tired and not having a good day, I can act out and throw a tantrum the same way I did when I was 12 years old, you know? Um, And even if it's not outward on the inside, you know, and we know what that feels like and it's not awesome. So emotional sobriety is definitely not always feeling happy, zen, peaceful, content. It seems like emotional sobriety is more like being able to be sad well, or to be yeah. angry well, yeah. and be healthy in, in the whole range of emotions. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, a really helpful tool for me to gauge that and to tell me what I need to work on is, um, you know, in AA, they call it a 10 step. You can call it an emotional wellness inventory. You can call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, um, I kind of go through a list. I share this with other people, but you don't have to. And I say, am I resentful? And what about selfish? What about dishonest? Was I dishonest today? Do I need to tell someone that? Um, was I afraid? And then I also do uh, credits. So things that I did well, because I need that encouragement. Debits, which isn't what I did bad. It's just what I could do a little bit better. And then gratitude, you know, so like checking in with that. And if I can see a prolonged pattern, you know, um, it was pointed out to me um, last year by a friend, you know, wow, you have these expectations of of these people in your life. And I was like, I know. Why did you point that out? But it gave me an opportunity, right? Here's something that I get to work on because my emotional center of gravity gets put on this person and this expectation rather than on whatever's real in this moment. Crisis becomes opportunity when you're able to handle the emotions. Um, so I love this idea. So that was the the emotional wellness inventory. Okay. Uh, I wonder, thinking about the like the student who's listening or the practitioner who's saying, hey, maybe I'm a little newer to this concept or maybe I'm kind of familiar with it, but I think I should get on this and start integrating this into my practice more. I wonder if there are other tools, methods like the emotional wellness inventory that they it would be good for them to to try out or you know what are some other ways that uh, people can work emotional sobriety into their practices yeah totally well i think um you know one thing on alan berger's website website sorry which is abphd.com i believe um he has a fair amount of uh podcasts and and information and and stuff like that that can be helpful um and i think that you know I always encourage clients to take time. It it depends if you're a morning person or a night person, I think. To take time, even if it's not that written inventory, you know, one period of time a day where you reflect on the last 24 hours and think about what that emotional wave has been like, right? Has it been like real choppy <laughs> and um, hard to navigate? And if so, what, what was that and what... And um, if it's been smooth, you know why? What coping did you use? And I think that always gives us a good baseline to check in with people, you know, and to check in with ourselves and supervision. You know, this, especially if you're newer, you're going to an internship, you're just starting out in school and and you start to notice these things about ourselves. I think we are our best teachers. You know, if I can learn from my own experience, like that for me is fundamental in my ability to be able to be present and help others. Yeah, it seems extremely valuable. And I'm thinking too about the way 
that you know we we are we are our best teachers uh, and our emotions are sometimes some of our best agents of teaching or some some of our best teachers within the within the teacher um you know emotions are adaptive they they communicate things if we can uh, tolerate them rather than try to resist them or escape them and then begin to understand them and where they're coming from then we can at least not do destructive things and maybe also do more productive more connective things also yeah and to take it back really quick to the beginning to kind of the family systems idea um you know anytime we are changing or moving or there's um a different occurrence of events in our family system, right, then we might notice a difference in those emotional waves. If we move back in with a parent, if we have um, a change in our relationship, then there might be a change in our family system that that occurs that um, causes some stuff to come up for us. And all of a sudden we notice we're reacting more or um, in AA a lot of times, sorry, to reference that, but it just is what it is. We say, um, was I, am I feeling restless, irritable, and discontent? You know, and for me, that's a really good gauge. Restless, irritable, and discontent, and why, you know? Yeah, and understanding why, very important. tell us a lot about that. For sure. You know? So in closing, I wonder, um, just any quick last summary thoughts pearls of wisdom for the person who's just really fascinated by this topic and saying, wow, I need to do this more. Yeah. I just say, check in with yourself, you know, like check in with yourself and like ask for help, you know, be real, be authentic and, and you'll find great people to help guide you. You know, that's been my experience. So for sure. Check in with yourself as a practice and as a norm. Yeah. I like it. Gosh, thanks guys so much for having me. I really appreciate for it. For sure. Thank yeah. you for coming, talking about feelings and family and everything <laughs> in between. And uh, best of fortune to you in all your scholastic endeavors. Oh. And may we all enjoy the Hawaiian beaches sometime, uh. sometime soon. Thank you, listener, for following along and tracking with uh, all that we're talking about and putting up with some of our corny jokes. Uh, please do um, rate and review the podcast. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, and all of the other platforms. So leave us a comment. Please leave us a comment. And <laughs> even if you don't like us, leave us a comment because that's still good feedback. And let's keep the conversation going. We love your feedback. So let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at, at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at, at Smart Council 601. And you can email your questions to smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This podcast was edited and produced by breakfastpuppies.com.